following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. And good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with 2XX 98.3 FM Behind the Lines. And that was the infamous Midnight Oil with The Beds Are Burning, an old favourite. Well, this week, to kick off our federal election series, joining us live in studio this morning, we welcome former Wallaby and ACT Brumby, passionate climate action advocate, and conservationist David Pocock, who is making his bid for the Senate as an independent in the 2022 Australian federal election. David's going to be chatting with us this morning about his vision of building a policy platform in partnership with the community and dealing with important issues we face today. And boy, are they myriad. And we want to build a better tomorrow. So welcome to the show, David. It's lovely to have you with us here in studio. Morning, Zena and Scotty. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So I was thinking probably the best way, we, what we like to do with our election series is help our listeners get to know the candidate as a person, not just as a politician. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people know your background. I shared with you that I'd been living away and I had to look up your background there. But if we could maybe get into a little bit of um, your early life and when you were a teenager living on a farm, in, um, is that, correct my pronunciation if it's wrong, Gweru? Gweru? Yeah, Gweru. Gweru, Zimbabwe. Yeah. And a the farm was um, resumed or taken by the Zimbabwe government's land reform and you were forced to move. So what was it like growing up on the farm before all that happened? How did that sort of set a precedence for things? Oh, I'm so grateful for my, the childhood I had. Hmm. You know, grew up, growing up on a farm, we had uh, livestock and some crops and, yeah, I, I guess spending a lot of time outdoors in nature kind of had free reign to... Uh, to get around. I've got two younger brothers, so we got up to a lot of mischief. We lived about half an hour out of town, so sort of close enough to not have to go to boarding school, which both my parents didn't. They were adamant that me and my brothers wouldn't, so we would drive in every morning and then, you know, come back after school and, and uh, yeah, <laughs> have, uh, have fun on the farm. I guess growing up, it never, it never crossed my mind that we would leave Zimbabwe. It was home. I loved it. And then in the late 90s, politically, things really changed. The government was under a lot of pressure with an opposition party and they decided that land reform was the way that they could stay in power. And rather than a really uh, well-orchestrated and planned land reform program, it really just spiralled out of control, got very violent. Uh, you know, a couple of... Farmers in our in our farming district were murdered. Uh, you know, thousands of farm workers were were beaten up, and we we ultimately lost our farm. And fortunately, my mum was a qualified school teacher, so we were able to apply as skilled migrants and and arrived in Brisbane in 2002 with 10 suitcases and kind of started started life again. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it it was a it was a big few years for our family. But like so many migrants, arrived in Australia just so excited about the opportunity and being able to start life again. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a huge challenge arriving somewhere mm-hmm. with not really knowing anyone, not, not understanding the culture. But as I said, really grateful the opportunity has given me and, and, and my brothers it's it's obviously harder for parents you know yeah. we we arrived with with nothing farmers are 
asset rich and cash poor mm. and we've pretty much lost everything so yeah it really was starting again for my folks and like so many immigrants you know they they turn 60 this year and they'll have to keep working for the foreseeable future no no super or mm. sort of anything like that um but yeah that's kind of how i how i got to australia and you know arriving here after that that time of uncertainty and, and everything that happened we all arrived with uh, you know some trauma and, and dealt with it in different ways my youngest brother had fairly bad PTSD and spent about six months as an outpatient in hospital which was tough and that was from the turmoil going on yeah when you were just leaving. from the uncertainty yeah. in Zimbabwe mm-hmm. and um, you know seeing seeing one of our neighbors um, well, the, the the father and son were ambushed and the, mm. the father died, but the son survived with, you know, eight bullet wounds and kind of seeing that um, really rattled me and my brothers. Mm. And we dealt with it in different ways. And, and for me, that was sport. I'd always mm. enjoyed my sport and arriving in Australia, just kind of threw myself into it. And that's how I made friends, felt like I belonged and... I guess just so that just was your tribe. You found your tribe, right? Very much, yeah. I mean, very much so. And, and you know, I think that is that is the value of sport for for young people is you mm-hmm. get to challenge yourself, you know, learn what it is to be part of a team, to contribute to something, to put the team before yourself. And I, I really, mm-hmm. I really love that. Mm-hmm. And you know, th- thankfully had had really supportive parents and who encouraged me to kind of chase my chase my dreams and and as a kid I'd always wanted to play rugby at the highest level and and I and I managed to do that mm. and I guess having had that experience through my rugby career I really believe that sport is at its best when it's not just being sport but actually challenging society to be more inclusive yeah. and speaking up on on so many of the big issues issues we face so that, that was certainly something I tried to do while I was well, I was playing professional rugby, you know, mm. talking about climate action, talking about marriage equality, uh, working to try and actually address homophobia in sport, which, you know, sport's come a long way and I think society's come a long way, but we've, mm. we've got a long way to go still. You know, this is, uh, this, there's some big issues, as you said in the intro, that we face and it's going to take all of us actually getting involved, rolling up our sleeves and, and starting to deal with them. So as you mentioned, growing up on the farm, that probably exposed you to, you know, the rigours of potential climate impact or mm. just weather impact, you know, as you're so reliant on having a good season. So was that where you began your interest in being um, a conservationist and being a climate activist or did that happen later? Growing up on the farm certainly gave me a love of nature. Yeah. My grandfather, my dad both loved birds Mm -hmm. and so you know grew up wanting to learn the you know birds names learn their calls spent hours watching birds you know trying to trap birds on the farm and I think yeah I guess that that kind of progressed and then you know at at school and, and particularly at high school you learn I really enjoyed geography and you're learning about climate change and the impacts that are happening and you know, I guess for me, growing up, I had heard stories from my grandfather and and my dad. When my grandfather was farming in that area, there were lion and buffalo and and you know these 
wild animals roaming around. When my dad was growing up there, there were no more lion, there were no more buffalo, but there were a whole bunch of these other species like, like, like sable and sort of the rarer things. When I was growing up, there was none of that. And so, you know, in the space of three generations, it was real. Like, and as a kid, I remember thinking like, how come I don't get to experience what it's like to, to see, these, see these wild animals? So I guess that, that was always part of, uh, you know, my thinking and, and as, a, as a farmer, you love, you love the land that you, you, you live on and that, that, you, that you farm, but you also have the reality of having to pay the bills, put kids through school, all these sorts of things. So I'm, I find it really frustrating the way that farmers are sort of pitted against or, or demonized i think we we actually just have to have a bigger conversation about how are we going to produce our food how do we ensure farmers are part of the solution to looking mm. after biodiversity and to actually caring for this yeah, mm. amazing continent that we get to live on mm. not sure if you know but scotty's got a strong farming background too so appreciates Very the challenges nice. there. Yep, yeah. yep. <laughs> definitely. And do you reckon that wild, wildness and, and farming can coexist? That was really interesting because I think uh, as far as I know in Zimbabwe, farming only really started as a thing in the early 1900s. So it's mm-hmm. only about 100 years old there. And you're saying in, in a few generations, you've been able to see the wildness sort of declining there. Do you reckon we'd be able to do it? Can we pull it off to do farming and retain the mm-hmm. wild? We're seeing a huge shift in the way that we're farming. For so long, we've had this view of having to sort of beat nature into submission to to take your yield from nature, and and you know through the work of some you know some pioneers in the field who've who've thought differently, and and also looking back at sort of ancient indigenous wisdom cultures that existed and lived in places for tens of thousands of years there's a shift towards actually working with nature and enhancing natural systems but also getting getting a yield being able to produce food and fiber for our needs while we actually build topsoil and increase biodiversity here in australia we you know we're fortunate to have some of the world leaders in this this space farmers like charlie massey Colin Sice. Growing up in Zimbabwe, someone like Alan Savory, <laughs> he was well known, very, very divisive. Um, you either loved him or you hated him. <laughs> but I think as time goes on, we're starting to recognize that we, we can actually bring together the latest technology when it, you know, when it comes to electric fencing and, and all these sorts of things that allow us to mimic ancient uh, natural ways that 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 the earth has has evolved to have big herds of big herds of animals moving through systems and then then allowing that that grassland to to actually recover so i think it's a hugely exciting area something i've really enjoyed i studied it at, at, at university and yeah have have enjoyed being being part of it i'm, I'm involved in a agriculture and conservation project in Zimbabwe. Mm. I spent quite a bit of time there last year before deciding to run for the run for the Senate here in Canberra. And just just seeing the way that communities and, and farmers sort of 
come alive when they start to see their land healing and, and coming back to life, when you start to repair the water cycle and all of a sudden rivers have more, more water in them, uh, there's more vegetation, the droughts aren't as harsh because the rainfall that you do get is actually soaking into the soil. Yeah. Are you familiar with the work of John D. Liu, L-I-U? Yeah, some of his um, revegetation yeah, in so China. Yeah, he, he documented the revegetation of the Luce Plateau in yes. China, which really proved to the world that this can be done on a landscape level. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just with a bit of political will and a bit of nous. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think we, we're seeing across society people start to get more engaged to want their food to be produced in a way that's looking after nature, that's actually working to improve biodiversity and you know, not like we've been doing for so long, mining topsoil. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's totally unsustainable the way we, we have been doing conventional agriculture for a, for a long time and we, we're thankfully starting to see that transition to a more regenerative, sustainable way of doing things. It's got to be more fun too than having the agronomist tell you which spray to use when and instead you're looking at this amazing web of life with all its billions of different parts and the weather and you, it's more interesting. <laughs> I think it's more, it's more interesting. I think it's also more challenging because you, you're managing a complex system and so you've got to be really good at actually reading your landscape and, yeah, being willing to make mistakes and and learn from them so yeah it, it, it is a challenge but i think it's it is rewarding and and there's some really interesting studies done after the last big drought here in australia looking at farmers who identified as regenerative farmers or were really connected to their local land care group their mental health through the drought either stayed the same or actually went up compared to farmers who are just identified as conventional farmers so you had huge, you know, huge dips in their in their mental health, and mental health is such a big mm-hmm. issue for farmers uh, here in Australia. It's a it's a really tough way to to make a living. So I think that connectedness to other farmers who are, who are trialing things and, and trying to do things differently, but also that connection to the land, and actually seeing it improve, uh, is good for us as humans. Mm. So I guess farmers and and footy players are are both really quite well known for, uh, well, not being that communicative, really. I mean, you've quite clearly got the gift of the gab. Um, was there anything that in your upbringing that sort of made you more open to actually talking and, and, and expressing what you feel? Because some of the things that you've said, especially during your footy playing career, must have been a bit out there to the, some of your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty introverted, so I... You know, I'm not not great on small talk, yep. but I do love talking about things that that I find interesting, and I love talking to passionate people and people who who are doing really meaningful work. So certainly, there were you know, a bunch of things during rugby that I thought were really important to actually contribute to the conversation around around climate action here in Australia. Like we. You know, more than any other developed country, stand to lose the most from inaction, but stand to gain the most from from like a really good policy framework to actually deal with emissions, to decarbonise our economy, and create you know really exciting new sectors and jobs in these regional areas 
that have relied on fossil fuels for, for so long. And instead we've seen this awful politicization of the issue, which, which helps no one except the people who are putting a lot of money into politics to delay action. Feeding the billionaires again. Yeah. Well, we've, we've had a lot of activists on the show and it's amazing how many of them are farmers. Mm. You know, now when we talk to activist groups, I'd say at least 50% of them are comprised of farmers or people working the land in some way or form because they're at the front line of the impact of what's happening. Like we've seen just with the, um, the challenge to food security with the situation in Ukraine, how fragile our food security is. And we've had people come into the show who do um, disaster management and things like that. And they've said, look, Canberra's in a situation where we've got about two weeks worth of food. We don't grow anything here. And if, you know, all of the transport suddenly got cut off and they couldn't bring anything in, we would be out of food in about two weeks. So, you know, the, the idea of um, having some sort of sustainable food producing farming locally as well, not just bringing it in, you know, hundreds of miles from somewhere out in the regional areas that's also something we would like to consider as a possibility for Canberra. Mm. Have you had any discussions with folks around maybe making food production a bit more local? You know, I think your point about farmers being on the front line mm. is true. You're totally reliant mm -hmm. on the environment to produce things that actually give you a, mm. a living. And if you look at Australia, the government's own figures show mm. that the average farmer has lost 20% of their profit every year since the year 2000 due to climate change. So it's real. Mm -hmm. And farmers, farmers are feeling the pinch. And I, I agree, it, it, it is, needs to be part of this bigger conversation around our food system and just how, how vulnerable we are and, and what needs to be done to actually work to diversify it and also strengthen it at a local level. I know there, there are efforts around Canberra, there's some great mm -hmm. urban farms popping up. I think as, as consumers, as people who eat food, which is all of us, mm. we can really be supporting those local efforts. And at, you know, at the moment, the way that the food system's set up, it's obviously cheaper to shop at the two big supermarkets. <laughs> but if everyone was just spending 10 bucks a week, 20 bucks a week locally, I think over time mm. that'll actually grow the, the local food system and, and you know we start to realize the importance of that mm. during something like covid mm. where the supply the supply mm. chain is disrupted mm. for farmers who are uh, you know exporting 90 percent of their crop to china we see the the sort of global geopolitical struggles and just how vulnerable we are to that mm. so i think there has to be more of a conversation around this it's it's great to see it starting to happen because yeah we all we all eat <laughs> and we all want to be healthy and uh, yeah i think we've we've got to make sure that we continue to value farmers mm. and incentivize better farming practices and not just become this sort of race to the bottom where all we want is the cheapest possible yeah, like food. the milk saga that we had a few years back yeah mm. milk's milk's a, a great example mm the way that farmers are being totally screwed <laughs> by two big supermarket mm. chains that are simply having this price war and just mm. passing on uh, any discounts or cuts 
to the farm gate, to the farmer. So, you know, because you grew up on a farm and then you weren't able to continue life on the farm, so you might have very well gone on to be the next generation if you'd stayed in Zimbabwe farming that piece of land. Uh, you've come to Australia and your family obviously either decided not to or wasn't able to take up farming in Australia. Um, for you, is, is that piece of your life where you've sort of had that connection to the land and now you've um, chosen to go down a different road is would that be part of your interest in running for um, for the senate in that you are taking that connection you've had with the land wanting to bring some of the influence that you couldn't have back when you're in Zimbabwe into mm-hmm. working with agriculture and working with the environment through running and having an influence that way in politics I mean it's really funny how strange how um how life works i mean i remember as a kid i reckon i was probably 10 or 11 and like things were really mm-hmm. tough on the farm we'd invested a lot of money into this new crop the zimbabwe dollar was was going downhill inflation was starting to to really rise and my family had taken out a big loan and put in flowers that we were going to export to uh to holland and literally the week before we started cutting this crop, we had a massive hailstorm. They were all wiped out. And yeah, my dad was gutted. And I remember saying to myself as an 11-year-old, like, I'm never going to farm. Like, I'm going to do something <laughs> that I can actually make money, be a bit more comfortable. And I guess that was, you know, through my teens, that, that was, I'd, I'd never really thought that I'd want to get back into farming. As time goes on, you realize just how how much you do have that connection to the Mm. land and how important it is and yeah ultimately studied agriculture at university Mm. i'm involved in a a agriculture project in zimbabwe and yeah have been part of some of the conversations here in Mm. australia around agriculture and regenerative ag Mm. and how we start to move in Mm. that that direction but I, i think it really for me is such a good way to talk about our relationship to land and to the places that we live. Mm. We all know something isn't right. Mm. We, we know we're off, off track. And I think in recognizing that and actually looking for ways to be more connected to the places that we live and we love, it, it, it gives something to us. It gives us more, more meaning and I remember reading a while ago, I thought it was just such a good example. If you, if you take littering, you know, you, th- you throw some rubbish out the, your, your car window or down the street. Like that really signifies that you, you don't really believe this is home. Like this is your home. Because I think if, if we treated the places that we live and said, okay, this is, this is home for me, for, for my kids, for their kids... We, we treat places in, in different ways. And I think that connection to the places we live will actually start to repair some of these bigger sort of disconnects and issues that we're, we're having to deal with. Yeah, it's that word that you say, connection, like it was for you when you found through sport, you found mm-hmm. your connection. Like We all have to have a connection somewhere. We have to have meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the, the fallout from what's not working in the world mm-hmm. comes from a disconnect. Mm-hmm whether that's a disconnect from empathy or a disconnect from the, the place that you mm-hmm. live. And I, I guess that's kind of what's led me into putting my hand up to run for the Senate is growing up in Zimbabwe, seeing the political and economic t- 
turmoil there. Politics was real. Mm. It was a lived experience. And we, we are so fortunate here in Australia to have the democracy we have. But we also have some big challenges that we need to begin to repair and improve our democracy. Mm. So it's dealing with these big issues. And like so many people, I've, I've been getting so frustrated with the lack of action on the big issues, with how every issue is just politicized. And to me, it really comes down to that lack of connection. We've got politicians who aren't actually connected to the people that they're meant to represent. And aren't interested in connecting to the people from what's apparent. Yeah. Don't, don't seem to be. Yeah. And that was my motivation to run as independent mm -hmm. because as an independent, you've got no party machinery to <coughs> just help you win an election on, on name recognition. You have to actually get out there and be connected to the community and you're accountable to the community. If you don't, if you don't get results, <laughs> no one's going to vote for you. Mm. So to me, it's a huge challenge, but it's such a big opportunity to actually begin to repair part of our democracy when it comes to the lack of integrity, when it comes to, you know, truth and political advertising, donation reforms, all these things that we know we have to deal with, but just been kicked down the road. And then to actually start to deal with the big issues like housing affordability and cost of living, which, you know, everyone's talking about. We know that they're issues, but we, we need the government to get on with the job of actually dealing with them. Well, we, we're looking at, you know, issues that are being talked about now that were still issues 20 years ago. And they haven't been addressed. They haven't been addressed to any degree um, that you would consider satisfactory. I mean, even something as simple as you look at, um, you know, I think it's gone through many names, the Dole, Welfare, New Start, Job Seeker now. And I looked at that when I was um, leaving for my life in Canada in the 90s. I had about six months where I was on the Dole. And the Dole now is almost the same as it was back in the mid-90s. So when we had that period during COVID where everyone got the COVID supplement and they were able to, um, you know, put food on the table, they were able to go and have a medical appointment, that injected so much more money into the economy for that short period. And it changed a lot of lives. People, you know, who had been forced into unemployment through the situation of the restrictions of COVID, they'd lost their business or they couldn't go to work and had maybe never previously been on unemployment were suddenly faced with trying to live on an amount that didn't even cover a quarter of their rent, let alone feed their family. So having that um, little bit of injection into, uh, you know, I guess the, the, the most poverty-stricken end of our communities and giving them a little bit more choice and giving them some more buying power and spending power made a huge amount of difference to just our communities as a whole. You know, we, we saw that in the mental health, for instance, it in, a tremendous increase in mental well-being for people at that end of the mm -hmm. spectrum. So, you know, these are issues that have been talked about by so many politicians and so many elections go past. And, you know, it's always great right at the front end of the election. Everyone, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And there's no accountability at the end. So as an independent, you know, said you, you're... Um, your voters are going to hold you accountable. Your community is going to hold you accountable. How are you going to hold yourself accountable? Mm. So how are you going to um, action the things that, that are important to you, your pledges and your platforms? I mean, I think talking to people in Canberra, just, just on your mm -hmm. point, you know, people want to be rewarded for hard work mm. and to be able to, yeah, you know, build some wealth and look after their family but they also want a safety net that's looking after Australians because we all know that, you know, for a lot of us, we could very 
easily be in that situation. Mm -hmm. And so many people we know are in that situation. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, you know, during COVID with the increase to Job Seeker and, mm -hmm. and, um, and the other supplements, poverty went down. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as soon as that was cut, poverty's gone back up. So the poverty's a political decision, not just We have to find yeah. better ways yeah. to, to deal with that. We have to find ways to actually look after Australians who are doing it tough. In terms of keeping myself accountable, I've announced a whole bunch of things that I'll be doing to ensure that I'm staying connected to the community I'm going to have a volunteering program where people can actually come into my office and volunteer, see how it all works, have input. I'll have at a minimum quarterly town halls where anyone can come in, ask questions, hold me accountable. On big pieces of legislation, I'll actually go to the community and ask how people want those, those issues to be dealt with. But I, th I think the biggest thing is actually working every day for the people of the ACT. Mm. As a community, we've led on so many of the big issues in Australia over mm. the last decade. We haven't seen that translate into leadership at a, at a national level. And I think an independent can do that because there's no party line to toe. Mm. We've seen what independents like Cathy McGowan and Helen mm. Haynes have done in Indi. Mm -hmm. We've seen what Jackie Lambie's done for Tasmania. She's saying it how it is. She's going in there every day and, and, and fighting for the people that she represents. You know, she had over $200 million wiped off the social housing debt in Tasmania. That's a real tangible result that you wouldn't have got from either of the major parties. And that is, I guess, you know, because the motivation is different. Like you've expressed, you know, your motivation is to build a better experience for your community members and for those of us in the ACT and then as a whole, our country as well. But there's a lot of, I guess, um, and Scotty always warns, warns me of libel. This is where I start getting into trouble. But there's with the major parties, there's a lot of pleasing of the corporations, right? There's an independent. You, do, you don't have that beholden to a corporation hanging over you to try and um, put pressure on you to make certain decisions in, in favour of um, certain mm -hmm. policies. I really believe we need far more diversity of mm -hmm. voices in, in politics. Mm -hmm. Currently... I think less than 1% of the Australian workforce are lawyers. 20% of people in the last parliament were lawyers. Another 15% were from uh, union backgrounds. And 40% were just party, you know, people who'd climbed the ranks. So career at, politicians. Career politicians, yeah, yeah. exactly. Who all went to the same public school in Melbourne or private school in Melbourne. You know, yeah. I think we need more people from all different walks of life yeah. to actually come together with an open mind to debate these big issues. Currently, we've got a system where there's not even debate. People are coming to debate big issues with closed minds. They already know how they think about certain issues. We can change that. And looking at the composition of the next <laughs> parliament, it's, it's unclear what will happen there. But in the Senate, <laughs> the balance of power will almost certainly be held by the crossbench. And that could be Clive Palmer and Pauline Hanson, or if we can flip one of the Senate seats here in the ACT, it could be myself and you know, others on the crossbench. So this is really consequential for the next three years in Australia. And if you look at where we are in terms of something like climate action, we're a few years away from the point where it is 
outright just cheaper for households to electrify everything to actually buy an electric vehicle. But if we don't do the hard work over the next two or three years to actually work out how that's done, what does it mean for the grid, how do we work all these systems, and how do we ensure that those savings are actually go to the household and the suburb level and aren't, you know, taken by by a bank or, you know, whoever's uh, lending the money. We have to really do that work over the next next Mm -hmm. term to unlock all those benefits, Mm -hmm. which will speed up decarbonisation and open up a whole bunch of opportunities Mm -hmm. for for tradies Mm -hmm. and for all these new jobs that are going to be created in a a decarbonised society. Now, you've talked about um, housing affordability and cost of living being one of the pledges that you'd like to work on. Um, We've seen, just because of the cost of living in Canberra skyrocketing, the real estate market being blown out of stratosphere that there's um, it's anticipated that the majority of Canberrans who are owning under six figures are going to be renters probably for a very long time they're just not going to be able to afford to get onto the housing market which means that as renters they're not going to be able to make decisions like can I install solar on my roof can I get off gas and get onto um, a fully electric system for my household and potentially they may not even be able to afford to switch over right now to an electric vehicle so what what sort of incentives are there going to be for someone to say who is a renter who doesn't own property but who wants to be um, you know lowering their carbon footprint are there going to be um, opportunities for them to be able to do that if they're not a property owner or if they're not a high income owner Mm -hmm. this all comes down to a longer term vision we're currently seeing politics that seems to be all about the next election or not even that it's about the next news poll you know how do we keep our ratings up month to month at the moment in Australia, the Minister for Housing isn't even in Cabinet. We, we, across Australia, we have a housing crisis. How is that the case? We don't have a national housing strategy. These are all things that the government should be doing to say, okay, over the next decade, over the next two decades, how do we deal with this issue? We've got a huge undersupply. We, we're going to have to spend $290 billion over the next couple of decades just to keep up with the, the demand for social housing. Mm. We, have to, we have to actually get on with, with doing that. In terms of in- incentivising households, we have to make sure that as we transition our households to electrify pretty much everything, mm. low-income house- houses aren't left behind. We have to ensure that people who rent can benefit from energy efficiency, from solar. There's innovative solutions out there. We need the political will to actually make them happen. So maybe enacting some minimum standards that are enforceable, that sort of thing. My understanding is the ACT government is working on some minimum standards for houses that are, that are being rented. This has to be part of a bigger strategy. You know, the houses that we build now will be there in 2050 where we're expecting even more serious impacts from, from, climate, from climate change. So we have to be planning for that. We have to be ensuring that everything that we build now is built with that in mind and is, is meeting those, those standards that are going to be required then. When it comes to electric vehicles, you know, we're, we're currently the dumping ground for the, for the gas guzzlers because we have no emission standards. So there's a huge shortage of, of electric vehicles. 
and it's it's no surprise that they're so so expensive. We have to start incentivizing that through emission standards. Again, here in the ACT, we're probably ahead of the curve with with zero interest loans for things like electric vehicles. They are still out of reach for most people. That price is is coming down. You know, last year. The cheapest vehicle was, you know, I don't know, like a sixty, seventy thousand dollar Tesla or Hyundai. Mm-hmm. Later this year, it'll be a forty thousand dollar BYD. Mm-hmm. So things are trending in, in the right direction. We have to actually speed that up if we're going to decarbonize at the rate that we need to. Mm-hmm. And sorry, Scotty, did you want to jump oh, in there before look, you move on to some, a just, new topic? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking we're talking about innovation and and, and new things. I mean. Rob Hopkins, founder of Transition Towns over in the UK, he explains innovation by talking about a pizza. So innovation is like mucking around with your pizza. Your pizza works already. It's this thing that's great, you know, and you can change the toppings in and out and muck around with the bread. You're innovating on the pizza. But if you've got this bloody pizza that's rotten and doesn't work and you're just innovating by mucking around on it, you're actually not doing anything to change the, the, the problem. And what sort of... Imagine, imagination sort of, uh, what am I, okay, lost my plot. Uh, what sort of uh, imaginative solutions, like a bit out of the box? I mean, because we do have this economic system that just funnels everything up to the billionaires. And, you know, the inequality in the world is just insane. There's like six people have as much wealth as, as half of the world's population. It's crazy system. Have you, have you, well, what have you seen? Because there are a lot of solutions out there. What have you seen that's taken your interest um, around the world in, in new, different ways of doing things that might uh, might help to bump that system out? I mean, there are so many solutions out there, and and what we've been lacking is the political will and the long term vision to start to move towards them. And you know, really worryingly, we've seen at a time when innovation. And thinking outside the box is so important. We've seen cuts to the uni sector, cuts to research funding, cuts to the CSIRO. (laughs) All of these institutions that we should be supporting and we're seeing a public service that isn't actually allowed to be frank and fearless. They're They're constantly being undermined, talked down to. We have to be valuing and building trust in our public institutions to be able to deal with the uncertainty that we face. So for me, that's, that's a really big part of starting to turn this around is to value the public service. Let's stop talking about the size of it, whether it's, it's too big or too small. Let's talk about how important it is and the quality of it. Because I think COVID has really shown all of us just how important it is to have a good public service when it comes to health and Medicare and Centrelink and all of these services that millions of Australians rely on. For me, that's, that's a big thing, you know, having, having a few mates who are involved in some really cutting edge uh, research at university and their funding is, is uncertain. They, they have no real, real certainty. We're such a wealthy country. We can be balancing all of these things and ensuring we're investing in the places that are providing the solutions to some of these big problems. Mm. So I I don't want to um, miss out on talking to you about one of your passion projects here, which would be the new stadium. (laughs) And 
um, just wanted to address a couple of things that some listeners have mentioned. They've wanted to ask you, with your vision for building um, a new shared stadium and convention centre, and, and actually a whole precinct, sort of down near where the Olympic uh, pool is, and that would also pair nicely with the envisioned arts precinct, which is going to be from the Canberra Theatre out towards uh, Northbourne Avenue, and that's going to be, I think, a 2,000-seat venue they're talking about building. So that could be a lovely chain altogether. There's been comments of, can we not uh, refurbish the AIS to to make that viable into a standard that would um, allow us to host the sort of things we'd like to, or do we actually need to build a new facility? Mm-hmm. Good question. I mean, a lot has been focused on the stadium. For me, the convention centre is actually the the more important piece of this. It's the second oldest convention centre in in Australia. It's the least upgraded or Mm. invested in. Mm. And we're the nation's capital. We currently can't hold big conferences. We've got universities like the ANU taking conferences to Sydney because they can't bring the best in the world here. We've just been talking about how important the knowledge economy is. And there are such big flow-on effects from bringing the best thinkers in the world in all these different fields here to Canberra. And then in terms of economics, pre-COVID, the convention centre was turning away 20 to $25 million of business a year. To me, again, it speaks back to this lack of vision for what Canberra can be. We're a growing city. We're the nation's capital. We should have a convention centre where we can hold events, concerts, you know, all these things that that national capitals should be able to do. Exactly. And that's simply down to a lack of investment. And if you look at over the last 10 years, there's been a severe underinvestment from the federal government in Canberra. They're all safe seats here. It's such a safe labor, labor town with one Liberal senator. Mm-hmm. We're not getting the same sort of funding as the rest of the country and, and definitely not the same as marginal seats. Mm-hmm. So running as independent, that's, that's one of the goals is to actually make Canberra marginal. Mm-hmm. And when, when it comes to this convention center and stadium, there's significant cost savings in actually incorporating the two. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of work done looking at, well, where should this be? Should it be at Epic? Should it be at Civic? Mm-hmm. The thinking from experts is civic makes sense. There's a move around the world to actually make use of public transport with the way that the light rail is going to be rolled out. Civic makes sense. It will connect civic to the lake. You know, we currently have our city centre. We've pretty much got our back turned to the beautiful lake and this will really change that, open up civic to Commonwealth Park. As you said, it could be part of the, the wider theatre Plans, And I think this is about correcting the, the last decade of underinvestment. Uh, Serena has come up. Again, that's a total lack of planning to have infrastructure like that shut just because of a lack right, of maintenance. It's a very expensive COVID testing site currently. It is. Yeah. And my understanding is that has five to ten years max left mm. in its life. So, sure, we, we should probably spend some money and get it, get it back up to standard. So... The UC Capitals, um, one of our most successful sporting teams, the women's basketball team, actually have a have a home for finals. I'll be heading down and watching them play. In, you know, it's, I think their venue at the moment is 1300 in Tuggeranong. Mm. 
We shouldn't be in this situation. And what the AIS is about 5,000 capacity, isn't it? Seats? Yeah. Around that, yeah. I yeah. think it's four and a half. Yeah. So these these are all... There shouldn't be surprises. It's mm. it's a decade of underinvestment. It's a decade of, of a lack of vision. And it's a decade of, mm. of buck passing between the Territory and, and the federal government. We have to have federal politicians from the ACT who are working with the Territory on the, this longer-term vision of what do we want Canberra to be? As a growing city, it would be great to be able to host the best in the world, the best minds of the world in the world for conferences, major sporting events, major concerts. You know, the, the, the night before I announced that I'd be supporting a convention centre and stadium, the Foo Fighters played in Geelong, of all places. 25,000 people down there. Because it was a better stadium. <laughs> <laughs> Our biggest music venue is 1,800. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen through COVID, the art sector has been crippled. You know, I've got you know, friends who are artists, they're down 95% of their income for the last couple of years. Sure, it's starting to open up, but we have to be supporting the arts more. Mm. And I think this is all part of what is our bigger vision for Canberra? Mm. Sure, it's, 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 it's an expensive project, but talking to people involved, there is actually a lot of private money. Yeah. All we need is the territory and federal government working together to provide certainty that, yes, this is, this is something that's important for, for Canberra's future. And we can then take some of the pressure off taxpayers. Yeah. So I just got a couple of numbers to throw at you here and I was just looking it said in the 2021-2022 uh, financial year the ACT received a share of 166.5 million out of the Commonwealth's 15.2 billion in infrastructure and the majority of that went to the light rail and of the Commonwealth's overall 110 billion federal interest infrastructure pipeline the ACT share was a measly 1.2 billion. So for the capital that they're putting so little money back into infrastructure and investment, and there's been so much talk of, mm. you know, building, rebuilding and strengthening mm. the infrastructure, we're not actually seeing that translate into dollars. We're not. And, you know, $1.2 billion of $110 billion infrastructure fund that we hear so much about, <laughs> that's, you know, that's not even on a per capita basis. That isn't a fair distribution. Mm -hmm. But it's no surprise. We hear all this talk about the Canberra bubble. So for both of the major parties, it's, it's not a good political move to be spending money in Canberra because the rest of Australia looks at Canberra and says, you get so much attention. You've got all the politicians there. For all of us who live here, we know that that is such a small part of Canberra, the Canberra bubble that everyone talks about. We're, we're all part of communities and have families and, and love living here. And we want to see our city continue to evolve and be a great place to live. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think an independent can help change that. By making mm -hmm. it marginal, both parties are going to have to actually sit up and take notice for the first time. Well, it gives, it, it gives them some accountability then, right? They can't just blanket everything. Agree. And yeah. it's really interesting that since coming out on this, we've finally seen some more talk and movement from from Senator Seselja on these issues. And we've seen this kind of last-ditch pre-election announcements. Yeah, suddenly Zed wants to do a stadium as well, I believe. <laughs> Down in Tuggernaut. Yes. But, you know, we, we're now seeing announcements without actual commitments. Mm. We're, we're seeing announcements with him saying, I'm going to try and get this from my colleagues. After nine years, like, 
I think a big part of integrity for me is actually standing by your voting record and standing by your results. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm asking Canberrans to do is to, mm -hmm. to, to judge us on our ideas, to judge existing uh, politicians on their results, look at their voting record. Does that stack up with who Canberra is? <laughs> you know, who, what we want for our city? Uh, I don't think so, and that's why I'm that's why I'm standing at this election. Yeah. This is exactly what Dr. Peter Tate from the Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy said to us last week, when he was um, giving information to voters on on how to talk to candidates, how to interview candidates, to uh, make informed decisions, and that was exactly what you just said there. He was uh, saying that you know we really need to um, be able to have the transparency as well, and to find out the voting history, like how have your incumbents voted previously. On things has that made a difference? Have they followed up on what they said they were going to do? Um, as a, um, a hopeful and a candidate who's first time in politics, I guess your uh, listeners would, well, our listeners and uh, your potential voters would probably like to ask you a couple of questions which have come in. Are you okay to answer those, David? Yeah, for sure. Wonderful. So. Um, First question, and I think this is probably a question in relation to our current sitting um, senator on this issue. What is your stance on voluntary euthanasia? And that's come in from Ngunnawal in the ACT. I, mean, I think around 80% of Canberrans support voluntary assisted dying. Yeah. Every state either has legislation or there's legislation mm -hmm. that's been proposed around this. My take on this mm -hmm. is that Regardless of my personal view or anyone's personal mm -hmm. view, look at the bigger picture. As a territory, we should have the right to debate this and make mm -hmm. laws just as the states mm -hmm. do. Senator Selger has argued against mm -hmm. us having that right. He's argued against us having more territory rights that would allow us to do that. Mm -hmm. And that, that's wrong. We, we should be able to do that and we have to be able to do that. And I will be getting in there and arguing for the ACT to have the right to make laws on this that affect so many people. Yeah, I think for, for many people, this is personal. I've seen a grandparent die an awful death. And by the end, he wanted to, he wanted to die. There was no chance he was gonna make a recovery. People in those situations should be able to make those decisions. So just depart with dignity, in other words. This, yeah. is, a, this is actually, this is about dignity and looking after people who've reached that that stage in life and allowing them to, to die with dignity. Mm. Yes, we have to have mechanisms in place that ensure that this isn't used inappropriately, but as we've seen in the states, there's the states around Australia, mm. there's ways to do that. So, mm. yeah, for, yeah, for me, I think this is just one of the things that Senator Selger is out of touch with mm. people in Canberra. As I said, 80, almost 80% of Canberrans support us having the right to do that. That needs mm. to change. Mm. And the second question was very, very current with what's happening in our city this week. It said, with the arrival of more freedom protesters in Canberra this week, there are several listeners who have asked us what your stance is on vaccine mandates and the freedom to choose whether or not to take the shot without risk of losing your job, being barred from visiting loved ones in hospitals and aged care facilities and accessing services or being segregated in society. What is your stance on the mandates? Yeah, Putting this, you on a position there. <laughs> this is this is a really tough one. I really support people's right to protest. I think mm. it's so important for democracy that we allow people to yeah, to gather, protest to make their, their views heard. 
I disagree when that then leads to shutting down the Lifeline Book Fair, impacting on the farmers' market, talking to a bunch of people in, in Canberra, particularly women, not feeling safe. I think we have to be standing up and speaking out against that. I think when it comes to vaccinations, this is, this is about education. It's about actually having, having those conversations. And you know, we've, seen, we've seen with the, the rollout of the vaccines, it really highlights some of the inequality and, and the, the differences in access mm-hmm. to healthcare. If you generally believe that you can go to your local doctor and get good access to healthcare, they're going to take you seriously. You're very likely to be double, triple vaxxed. If you have a very uncomfortable relationship with the healthcare system, maybe don't trust it, it's hard to access. It's well, a very regional areas, remote exactly. areas. Exactly. Yeah. Regional areas, Aboriginal communities. It's, it's a different, it's a whole different uh, scenario. So I think this is really about educating and being able to talk about these these hard issues. The reality is is that Australians have sacrificed so much over the last two years to keep people safe, to keep our communities safe, to, to keep older people, vulnerable, vulnerable people safe. We now have to look at what does it look like to move out of COVID or to live with the virus. People want certainty from small businesses to parents with kids at school, we have to be having these hard conversations and, and making really pragmatic decisions about what that looks like going forward. Well, otherwise, we're all farmers dependent on the weather, right? Mm. <laughs> if there's no certainty for anything. Yeah. Um, so in closing, um, I just would like to ask you if there's listeners who've been really inspired by hearing our interview today and they would like to get involved with Team Pocock, um, how can they donate or volunteer or maybe um, host a yard sign? Uh, where, where can they go to get that information? The best way to start, the best place to start is davidpocock.com.au. We've got all the information on there. You, you, as you said, you can host a yard sign. You can sign up to volunteer. We've now got volunteers in every suburb in the ACT. I've been blown away by the support and coming up against the big party machinery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have as much money as them. We, we don't have the huge teams. We're relying on people. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is all about. This is about people wanting politics done differently, people wanting politics done better. And so I would love people to head there sign up get in touch we're busy finalizing my policy positions that we'll be putting out we've we've led with integrity because that's the biggest thing we've been hearing i think we've got some really solid policy positions on that and the rest will be coming out over the next few weeks and we'll also be having a number of community forums around housing affordability cost of living uh renewable energies like how how do you actually electrify your household what does that look like so we're really wanting to engage people. We've got a couple of youth forums coming up. This is about people. I want to be connected to people in the community. So if you have thoughts, comments, questions, there's a, there's a place on the website where you can ask, ask those questions, davidpocock.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, great. And if people want a chance to meet you, David, I know you've had a couple of mornings out at the Epic Farmers Market out there. And um, Have you got any upcoming events where members of the public can come and meet you? We've got a heap of events. We haven't been doing 
sort of your standard uh, kitchen table events. Mm-hmm. We've got a more <laughs> COVID-safe politics in the park, which is which has been great. Mm-hmm. I've loved getting out and meeting people. All those details are on the, on the website. I think I've got three this weekend around Canberra and a number of other events that'll be out. Mm, lovely. Well, I have to say, I just want to close with this lovely um, comment that was shared with me. I was at a town hall meeting earlier this week and I was speaking to a former Labor minister and uh, mentioned we were having you on the show this Friday. And he said, oh, David's probably far too decent to be in politics, but he's just what politics needs. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> so that was a, a lovely compliment there. And we wanted to thank you for joining us this morning. I know you've got uh, an, another engagement to get to, so we won't hold you up any longer. Thank you for being on the show. We look forward to following your journey thank you so much for having me really enjoyed that (laughs) thanks a lot you're welcome and that was david pocock independent candidate for the senate you have been listening to an episode of a line in the sound the podcast made by co-ops commons and communities canberra co-canberra for short the new economy network of australia or nina and radio behind the lines from community radio to double x 98.3 fm in canberra australia co-canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.